Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week. It's time for Sesco 2023 with the annual World Copper Conference being held in Santiago next week. I'll be down for the first time since 2019 and I'm very much looking forward to being back in Chile and catching up with friends and clients to chat about copper. So what will and what won't be discussed, in my view at least, let's start with the obvious. Everyone will be talking about the positive longer term demand fundamentals and the energy transition and bear in mind this is also a producer dominated conference so expect some bold forecasts in this area. Even gold conferences, of course, are all about copper these days. Also, as ever at Sesco, there will be a discussion on the lack of supply performance and the ongoing challenges in Chile and Peru. That much is known. What will be more interesting to ascertain will be views on Chinese demand. This, in our mind, that's one where there's little conviction at present. While there will be some Chinese customers there looking at the attendee list, the numbers are still limited and hence the views of the commodity traders will be particularly important. With a weak refined import premium but strong concentrate demand at present, I'd expect views to vary depending on what part of the Chinese chain people serve. I'll also be interested to hear views on why Chinese refined copper output is looking so strong and can the current levels up over 10% year on year be sustained. During the conference, also likely to hear more on the Chilean royalty bill seems like the divide between the miners and the government looks to be narrowing recently, and also more on the new technologies being developed to boost copper extraction. Other topics might be discussed, well, the trends in costs and productivity in the sector, perhaps some molybdenum market given the recent price performance. It'll also be the first Sesco in Chile since Cadelco's output downgrades last year, so future plans of Chile's state-owned companies will be keenly sought. And... I'd expect some clamour for copper to be given wider critical mineral status by governments around the world. Of course, the EU has already done so, and this will be particularly true for responsibly sourced copper. What might not be discussed, which is often just as interesting? Well, given the nature of Sesco, I doubt we'll get much discussion as to why high copper prices might actually be detrimental to the industry in the long term. Our view remains that steady, controlled substitution is good for the overall industry good for through-cycle margins. Sudden, frenzy substitution, much less so. Now, I do like to spend time looking at China's economic data to try and work out where commodities are headed. At the moment, however, we are one of those points where certain things look good and certain others look bad. On the positive side, credit. China's March credit data blew past expectations. Total social financing, which is of course a broad measure of credit and liquidity, increased by 5.4 trillion RMB in March, that's up from 3.2 trillion in February. New one loans totaled 3.9 trillion RMB, that's more than double February, that caps a record new loan issuance for Q1. And in particular, medium to long term household loans, that's primarily mortgages, they rose to RMB. 635 billion, up from just 86 billion in the prior month. This is a clear sign that home buyer sentiment is improving and brings us to property, where sales prices have stopped declining, developer completions are now positive year on year and likely to stay that way. 
Flipping the other way though, on the negative side of the ledger, well, exports have clearly slowed, hence some new policy support in recent times. Wider manufacturing and related metal demand is mixed. Recent weeks have seen much higher utilisation rates at copper wire and cable fabricators well above year-ago levels, uh, with talk of stronger order books. However, reports abound in capital goods sectors about discounting mid weaker sales, with autos to the fore. Battery demand conspicuously weak, and more recently, according to the China Electricity Council, coal-fired power demand dropped 14.6% sequentially in the first week of April. No wonder coal prices are falling, even if this is somewhat seasonal and weather-related. But it is worth remembering that with coal prices and other raw material inputs falling, this could pressure the domestic aluminium price as the industry cost structure drops. Taking a step back, what does everything tell us? Honestly, it's looking a lot like a normal Chinese economic recovery. Perhaps less aggressive than we've seen in the past, but the standard template is being followed. First, you get a credit boost. Local governments plough money into infrastructure projects, this time round into schools and hospitals more than simply roads and rails. And then the property sector cycle turns, boosting wider manufacturing sentiment. And finally, only finally, and likely in the second half of this year, the consumer contributes. China's recovery is still happening. It's just a different form to the reopening we saw elsewhere in the world. And arguably, for now at least, it is actually a more metals-intensive one, though we still have some concerns about how long into the second half of the year this can be sustained. So, gold has surpassed that psychological level of $2,000 an ounce, so what happens now? Certainly a topic of deliberation, even if reported attendance at the Europe Gold Forum in Zurich this year uh, was well down on pre-COVID levels, unlike other major industry events. In our view, broader market uncertainty and potential tail risks combined with the dollar trading in a fairly narrow range should support gold prices near current levels this quarter and indeed next. To see prices make a sustained break higher, we would though need to see either central banks adopting a more dovish stance, evidence potential aftershocks in the banking crisis, feel that macro headwinds mount to the point where a hard landing scenario comes back onto the table, any of these would typically see macro asset allocators pivoting towards gold more aggressively. And to be fair, the IMF this week piloted some of these areas as concerns in its latest World Economic Outlook report. However, on the retail side, well, early signs point to prices at these levels starting to weigh on physical demand in key consumer hubs. Bear in mind there is still some price sensitivity for the consumer in gold. Prices in India, for example, surged to a record high 61,400 rupees per 10 grams this week. And that's led dealers to start to offer discounts, notably of above $30 an ounce. Over the past couple of years, 60,000 rupees has been a bit of a barrier for Indian consumers. Chinese dealers, they've also offered discounts for the first time in months. And with second quarter often ushering in a quieter season for gold purchases in China it might be maintained. Despite our forecast for record nominal prices this year for the third consecutive year, gold equity performance has been, quite frankly, lacklustre for many miners. Why? still feels like this is down to concerns over persistent cost inflation pressures facing the industry, perhaps more so than other areas of metals and mining. That said, the average all-in cost across gold miners under BMO's coverage is poised to fall albeit just 1% year-on-year this year, 
to $1,466 an ounce. That does point to another year of healthy margins, certainly in terms of the history of the gold industry. I'd also highlight that strong gold prices typically mean stronger silver prices, particularly when industrial use is still relatively robust. This is good for primary and byproduct silver producers alike. Naturally, there is a lot of excitement and a degree of trepidation about the surge in corporate activity seen in the metals and mining sector over 2023 to date. I'm certainly not going to comment on any individual transaction, but I do think this reinforces a very important thematic point. If you're a mining company and you want growth, you have the choice. Do you build it or do you buy it? Typically, there might be a balance with maybe a slight skew towards building, giving mining companies naturally like building mines. However, in the simplest of terms, building is just too hard at the moment. I discussed this a bit in the last Metal Matters. It's only for the bold or the foolish at the current time. Buying growth might be pricier, but it comes to a lot less risk and a lot less shareholder pushback. You get a known cash-generating asset now versus something that might not make you money 5-10 to 10 years down the line. Does mean, though, that the industry dollars being generated are not being put back into the ground, directly at least and thus solving future supply-demand imbalances becomes harder. There are several implications of this, but an extremely important one I don't feel is being thought about enough is that traditional incentive price analysis is broken. It's premised on several large and often flawed assumptions. We think that by using incentive pricing, the market is underestimating through-cycle equilibrium prices for metals. Bear in mind that incentive pricing only works if projects can actually come to market and are being approved to do so. Historically, that was the case, but is much less so now. Indeed, typical incentive price curves are full of projects that have been on that same curve for 20 years, going nowhere, and that really shouldn't play a role in analysis. This is why, particularly for those commodities with growth linked to the fuel-to-materials transition, we have moved towards substitution or demand destruction pricing for the investable time horizon. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters. If you have any questions or any suggestions for topics you'd like to hear me address, just get in touch directly. And I do hope you can join me next time round to discuss even more pertinent issues for the global metals and bulk commodity markets. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers, or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton at bmo.com. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com forward slash public hyphen disclosure.